Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader. So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI Leadership Coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership Coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. Hey, everyone. We're thrilled to be chatting with Eric Weiss today, executive coach, founder, CTO, and host of the Chaos to Clarity podcast. Eric is a super hands-on coach, working with technical founders, CTOs, CPOs, and VPs of engineering and product to intentionally mature along with the needs of their business, develop strong leadership and culture, and overcome any growing pains that growing a business may throw at you. In this episode, we really dive into the nitty-gritty of why product and tech leadership can be so uniquely challenging what ChatGPT and AI have to offer going forward, and how to go from leading out of fear to leading with confidence, and how to go from chaos to clarity in your business and in your team. Let's get right into it. Hi, everyone. Yet another Teams at Work episode. Unbelievably, I think it's the 41st, so we've recorded 40 episodes so far. And here with me today, as usual, we have a really, really cool guest that I'm going to introduce you in one second. But before that, I want to actually really know from my co-founder, Anthony, who's co-hosting this podcast, what was your takeaway so far from the 40 conversations? Well, they've all been very different, but I think they've all had one thing in common, in my opinion. Um, We've had a lot of amazing, you know, engineering product and tech leaders on And I think it's something that we're going to cover with our guests today, but it's just how unique the transition into management and leadership, how unique the journey is for a technical person to go from a technical role into a leadership role. And um, it's just been so as an, I think as a non-technical person, it's just been absolutely amazing to listen to 40 people cover that transition in so much detail and excited to make it 41 today here with Eric. Super nice. Couldn't have been a better bridge, obviously. We have Eric Weiss here today with us, who is an engineer and an engineering leader and now an executive coach. So he's kind of seen it all. Hi, Eric. So good to have you here. Hi, Daria and Anthony. Pleasure to be here. And I will dig right in. My first question, obviously, is how did this journey actually happen? So how did you decide to go into engineering first and then all the way up to CTO, and then switch gears entirely and be like, nope, I'm going to coach people now. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'll try to be quick, you know, tell my life story. But I've been an engineering geek and a hacker and a tinkerer since I was probably in diapers. I used to tear apart my He-Man and Ninja Turtle toys uh, that had all the electronics in it and figure out how they worked and make little Frankenstein monsters. And then that turned into in the late 80s, early 90s, when the first PCs came home and I would tear them apart and figure out how they worked. That was always just in my nature. 
became a bit of a black hat hacker for a while. And uh, I'm not going to get too deeply into that, but... Um, That's the interesting parts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. Statute of limitation. No, I'm just kidding. No, but, you know, I've just always been obsessed with technology, obsessed with science fiction and just really inventing the future. And so I was involved in the early days of the internet, working at internet service providers and then through my, you know, my studies as a computer engineer and then on into my career. But then what I discovered fairly early on is how much I loved people more than machines. And so as soon as I started collaborating with teams and being given opportunities to lead teams, I just realized I just had a huge passion for it, even more so than I did coding. And so coaching was actually just like completely second nature. I didn't even have to think about it. It was just how I led. It was how I managed, which to me is really about understanding the motivations of the individual. And then how do I work with them or collaborate with them, leveraging their own motivations to achieve our shared goal or outcome of the of the team. And so that was just kind of the way I managed and led my engineering teams all the way up, you know, to becoming a CTO. And then had a shift when my kids were very little, my children were born and needed more flexibility and autonomy in my life and moved into actually CTO coaching, fractional CTO consulting and coaching. And that has evolved into agile coaching and product coaching and ultimately where I am today as an executive coach. And so, Eric, to the point in the intro, what is unique in your experience, but also just in your opinion, what is unique about leading technical teams or technical leadership. And if you have anything to share from your journey, we'd love to hear a few stories or a few examples, but yeah. Yeah. So I actually, you know, I actually have a whole talk around this, but I believe that the role of the CTO is the most complicated role in the C-suite, meaning we are expected to be down in the engine room, shoveling coal, keeping the lights on, fighting fires, but also up in the ivory tower innovating and inventing the future. And we're supposed to be doing both of these things incredibly well and at the same time. And so that's it's a huge challenge. So not only are we being stretched in terms of our engineering capabilities and prowess, but then we're also being expected to be an effective and mature leader where many of us are, are introverts. Many of us have struggles with communication, with conflict, with feedback and that sort of thing. And even just, you know, management and hiring and all those sorts of responsibilities tend to just get in the way of all that fun coding that we want to do. And so it really is a struggle. And one, it's a journey that we all have to go through. And many of us don't actually do well. Uh, many of us fail and either never reach our full potential and get stuck either in an ICE, an individual contributor role or in a kind of a low level management role, or we get sort of thrust to the top, you know, at a, at a rocket ship startup but then our organization crumbles beneath us because we haven't developed, you know, the leadership acumen. Is it masterable, you think, the role? Like, have you met people that are like, wow, this is exactly how it's supposed to work, but like, it's probably <laughs> one out of a million unicorn. You know, one thing that I've learned being an executive coach, right, I've worked with CEOs and CTOs of companies from the early stages all the way up to large enterprises is, you know, we're all human. We all have our challenges. We all have our blind spots. And I think the best ones are the ones that are the most self-aware, right? The ones that understand that they have their limitations and actively seek to improve and to surround themselves with people who can support them and help them grow. 
So I really work on kind of maturity, you know, d- basically taking the leader, not just the CTO, right? But, you know, I, I work across the C-suite, understanding kind of the persona of the type of leader that they are now and how that aligns with what the business needs at this stage, and then helping them prepare for, well, either to catch up to what their business needs from them today, and then to prepare for the next stage. And I think the biggest challenge or pitfall is things tend to change very, very quickly. And if we're not prepared, things blow up. Yeah. And, and I'd, I'd love to throw in one more on this topic, Eric. We, I, for, the, for the audience out there, just recently, I uh, had the pleasure of going on a very long walk with Eric in San Diego and chatting about all these things. And Eric dumped it all on me. And I just had a lot of um, selfish questions about his perspective on our app and all of that. But one of the things that I definitely took away from that conversation was, I think I had asked you sort of something like, what is unique about technical leadership? And honestly, we were talking about how to coach people better. And you said, look, in my experience across all my clients, it really isn't that different. The role doesn't really, um, there's some uniqueness about the role, which you just talked about, but there's like, I think you had said something like, there's like three to five things that are like sort of the 80-20. There are three to five things I coach everybody on. So we'd love to know in a bit more detail what you meant by that. And is that sort of the counter to what we just said about technical leadership transitions being so unique or what are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, right. That's a good point, right? I don't have a contradiction here. I mean, I think that there are definitely very common patterns where technical leaders tend to fail or tend to struggle. You know, one is certainly around people and there's a lot of facets there, understanding how do we hire really great talent? How do we help those people thrive, right? How do we get them onboarded and and align with the culture and trained up and motivated to be productive? How do we communicate effectively both within our team, across teams, and with our C-suite, and, and even with our you know, external partners or investors? How do we create feedback loops and continuous improvement uh, cycles within our organization so we're all challenging ourselves and challenging each other and confronting each other you know, to continue to grow and be the best versions of ourselves? That's all coaching to me, to be honest. So that's, that's a, a big domain that most leaders struggle with, but I think engineering leaders have never really been given the proper training and the proper environment to test those muscles. Then there's the process side of things, right? So then there's just the mechanics of the business. So I talk about um, there comes a certain stage in the life cycle of your company where the CTO especially needs to transition away from engineering the product to engineering the business. So their genius is no longer, or the, the value of their genius is no longer in creating features and building the product. It's how can I create a machine made up of people that builds the product, right? And so creating teams, I, I have models and patterns I call like the team factory, for example. How do we create a repeatable, scalable team that performs autonomously and, and at high quality? How do we create systems of, you know, workflows of actually getting the work done as it passes through, you know, idea stage, discovery, design, development, quality, customer success, and so on. How do we communicate to our stakeholders and our partners in the business, what our priorities are and, and what to expect, you know, coming down the line? How do we manage expectations around deadlines and around scope? There's all these sorts of things just around the machinery of running the business. And then there's the product itself which is how do we build not just a thing, but the right thing? And you know, this was a big part of my journey as an engineer and an engineering leader is I got really, really good at building widgets. 
And I got really, really, really frustrated when those widgets were left on the shelf or thrown in the trash because nobody wanted them. And so that was actually my journey to become not just an engineering leader, but a product leader and ultimately becoming a human-centered design evangelist. That's sort of where I, where I sit today is becoming incredibly customer-centric and empathetic to the customer, amplifying that customer voice in the engineering team so that the engineers actually know not just the widget that they're trying to build, but what's the context? What's the purpose of this thing that I'm building? And who am I building it for? And what qualities and principles matter to them so that I'm not just building the right product, but the right product for the right problem for the right customer? I have to follow up on this because I think this is such a big unlock or a big challenge also for most teams and most companies still. I think engineers nowadays in their training and education fully understand that customer needs are important and customer centricity is a thing. But I think understanding the theoretical value of it or why it's important and actually being able to kind of really put yourself in the shoes of a customer, try to empathize with whatever the needs are or aren't and being self-driven enough to obtain methodology on like how to get deeper into it, user research and, and the like, or having a dialogue with user researchers and product people, I think is a whole different box of stuff and tooling. So I would love to know your own personal kind of aha moments on that journey. Like where did it click for you that you turned from, you know, building like the gimmicky nerdy builder maker person is like, oh, I like grab this next thing that I want to build. That's exciting. I know exactly what I'm going to do with it. Yay. Like, let me go do the thing to, well, let's stop. We need to find out whether the thing is actually the thing they need. Maybe there is five other things and maybe they don't need any of them and just like need this one little like connector or whatever. <laughs> so how did you like jump this? Yeah. This gap that I think is so un unbridgeable for many engineers in the beginning of their careers. Yeah. Well, I think one of the first epiphanies that I had was just really realizing that product and engineering are part of a single process, right? There isn't the product and the design and the engineering process. There is one process that is a customer has a problem and gears turn and out comes a solution to that problem, right? And so I always knew that there was this gap and this, these communication challenges that we had with our product managers. And so I think it just started with trying to get better at communicating and understanding the expectations And this starts with, you know, some really sketchy requirement or, or some half-baked user story that we, you know, we've all gone through this where we've got to sit there and be like, what does this mean? What are you really trying? What are you asking me here? What am I supposed to build? Because every time you give me something, I go and I build it and I come back and you, you know, you keep whatever the requirements churn, right? You keep changing the, the game on me, changing scope, moving the goalpost. So I think it just started with that, trying to have a really good model of communication between product and engineering. And then there was this myth that I think we've all accepted, that is engineers don't care about the customer. They just want to code or they don't even care about the business. They just want to build stuff. They're just geeks. And I think that is a almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you like stick them in a cave or in a closet and you give them, you know, Red Bull and you just say like, just sit in your, don't come out and, you know, you embarrass us in front of our customers. Well, what do you think you're going to get? Like, Somebody's going to come in, you know, a product manager is going to come in with a scroll and say, can you please build this? And the engineer gruffly snatches it out of their hand and waves you away and they go and they code and they come out with something. Well, what are the chances of that thing actually being the thing that the customer really needs? 
right? And so that, I think breaking that myth and as an engineer and as an engineering leader saying, no, I want to know what the hell I'm doing and who I'm doing it for and like, who's using this and what else are they using to instead? Like, how do I actually design and build a good solution here? And so then demanding that of my product team, demanding that of my designers was, I think, a big shift for me as a leader. And then when I wasn't getting what I wanted, <laughs> actually saying, you know what, I'm actually going to get my hands dirty over here. I want to be involved in this process. I actually want to sit on the customer interviews. I want to sit in those grooming sessions and those design sessions. I want to see the feedback of the usability testing. I want to actually see how people are using the thing that I built and all the little flaws and deficiencies that they have so that I can understand how to build better product in the future. And so that, again, ultimately transformed me from not just an engineering leader, but a product leader as well. Super interesting and so many and inspirational moments. And I recognize so many situations <laughs> that we've been through with our engineering team too. On that note, actually, when you put yourself in the shoes of an engineering manager or a tech lead, I know those are two different roles, but in terms of kind of the, the organizational hierarchy, oftentimes the entry role and transition role from um, highly technical person into a less technical role and managerial role. What do you think are the challenges of that middle ground of management in tech organizations today? Well, I think the first challenge is really embracing the role, right? Um, that, you know, we have this Peter principle that we tend to promote our best engineers to being managers, and some are just really not a good fit. They might think they want it, but then realize, or whether they realize it consciously or not, really hate their hate their job and, and don't want to do those things. And so they become these player coaches where they really want to be coding, but they have to do this management stuff. And that's always a failure, right? So I think the first thing is really ensuring that anyone that we are promoting into a technical leadership role actually wants to be there. And then understanding and really clarifying what that role entails, right? So the coding or the technical part needs to be kind of put in a box a little bit. And the lion's share of the responsibility needs to be on managing and leading and growing the team. So I think that's kind of the first pitfall. The second pitfall is really understanding, well, am I just a people manager or am I a technology leader as well? And I think that kind of depends maybe a bit on the size of the company, but understanding that technology leadership is its own discipline. And maybe you do some coding, maybe it's more architecture, but what you're doing here is you're defining the best practices, right? You're defining the design patterns and the architecture that is going to level up the coding you know, practices or standards across the team. And so that may play out in code reviews or pair programming or kind of lunch and learn training, or it could even be actually coding components or adapters or interfaces to kind of bake in whatever standards that you're trying to, you know, bake into your architecture. So if anybody wants to build out an API, okay, well, we've got this framework here that you're going to use that has all the stuff that we want in it, right? So it not only makes your, your job easier as an engineer, but it also aligns to those standards. So that's kind of where I think the, if there is an individual contributor component, as you go up that leadership track, it becomes much more focused on architecture and best practices and much less on feature development. Uh, Eric, you answered my next question already, which was around the motivations of um, the motivate. What are the right and wrong? I got one more. I got one more in the in my pocket here, only because you just said something really interesting. 
But I think that's a really awesome answer. And we've gotten so many different variations of that question, the answers to that question of what are the right motivations to go into sort of an engineering manager position, what are the wrong ones? But I, I really love your unique take on that. But you, while you were saying that, you did say something really interesting. And it's sort of a, a dichotomy or a dynamic, I guess, that some of us know, which is, yeah, this kind of player coach or coach coach. And I think a lot of people have opinions on what makes a better coach. Is it the all-star rock star that then becomes the coach? Or is it kind of the coach that becomes the coach that ends up being the best coach? Would love to know what your thoughts on that are when it comes to product and tech. What have you seen? Because I think you're right, that sort of Peter principle of, you know, you promote the best engineer and it doesn't really work out. Maybe it didn't work out for, I don't know, one of multiple different reasons. Maybe they're just a better, we need them playing. But like, can that work out sometimes? What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, that's, uh, I think that's something that's been, I don't know that 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 question has ever really sufficiently been answered. I think that the common response that I tend to get about engineering managers or engineering leaders being technical is, you know, my team won't respect me if I don't understand the code. And I think that's a myth. I actually, I have clients as well that are CTOs that actually really don't even know how to code. They're more like product managers where product kind of took over engineering. And so they are the de facto CTO, even though they're not technical. I think, you know, certainly in a leadership role, leadership is more important than technical understanding. I think you need to have enough of an understanding to have a good bullshit detector, right? And to, to really just engage in a conversation but when I think about it, or the way I kind of coach this to non-technical, but not even a non-technical CTO, but even how does a CEO get into the room with a bunch of engineers and talk about an engineering problem? It's in the language of systems and components, right? So when we have a systems thinking approach, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about there are these black boxes that have names on it, and those are components that do certain things. And the way all those things are wired together to achieve some sort of outcome is as technical as anyone really needs to get in that role. And then it really becomes about the process. So if you're going to be technical, and this doesn't mean technical in terms of coding, but technical in terms of kind of a, a deep and hard understanding, it's how does the engineering development process work? How does Kanban or Scrum work? How does DevOps work? How do, you know, how does continuous deployment or continuous, you know, CICD work? So understanding the methodologies of the way product gets built is much more important than how the code itself is actually built, in my opinion. And then I think from a leadership perspective, when you talk about, you know, is my team going to respect me? They're going to respect you a lot more if you're compassionate and caring and empathetic and give them good feedback and give them opportunities and challenge them and create camaraderie and a strong culture. They're going to respect you a lot more than just being a good coder. And most engineers also understand it's their role to play the field. It's their role to like dig in the deep. And like, I don't think anyone really appreciates the boss that is like jumping into your plate all the time and trying to like solve problems on their own. One of my favorite parts of our podcast is when we ask this question, when you became a manager for the first time, what was that like? And walk us through your challenging moments, walk us through your first failures. And the reason why it's my favorite part is because I think it's still so mind-blowing, I think, to see successful and accomplished people in these podcasts and on shows and so on, and kind of always have this mythical expectation, oh, their success has been straightforward. Like they're clearly (laughs) 
smarter, more talented, more ambitious, whatever they have that I don't have. And like, that's why they're where they are and they do things very differently. And then to discover, oh no, they also struggle. They also have their own make or break moments where they make a decision to continue and to kind of grow beyond. So would really love to hear any of yours. Gosh, interesting. It takes me back. Um, so the first time I was given a small team to manage, both of my engineers or two engineers I was managing were 20 years older than me. So I was pretty fresh out of college. I was in my early 20s. And both of the guys that I was managing were gray-haired, more gray-haired than I have, right? So they were in their like late 40s. And there was definitely a dynamic of, you know, how do I earn their respect? And because, you know, I was a kid and, you know, people called me kid and, you know, I, I definitely needed to grow into that role. And I think, to be honest, now that you mentioned it might be part of my or why I became a coach or took coaching as a a leadership philosophy because I couldn't rule with authority. I needed to defer to them, right? You, you've been in this business a lot longer than I have. I can't tell you the right way to do it. I have a role and a responsibility as the manager to align with, you know, what are our, to set our priorities as a team, to ensure that we've got process and that we've got the right tooling, et cetera, and to communicate status and communicate expectations to other parts of the business. But in terms of what we're actually doing and how we're going to do it, I have to defer to you folks. So it became very collaborative. And I think that was how I was able to gain their respect and we were able to be successful as a team. It certainly wasn't easy. There was certainly obviously an imposter syndrome that I had to deal with for quite a while. And I mean, I don't know exactly, I don't think that ever goes away, to be honest. I see imposter syndrome as just evolving or growing once you're into a new, you know, a new space where you're not comfortable you get that imposter syndrome, but you have to, to kind of quiet it and overcome it. So I think, yeah, I think that was my biggest challenge, at least early on in my first management role. And as you've, uh, now that you are where you are, have you developed any ultra bulletproof, amazing Eric Weiss leadership principles that just, <laughs> you know, that you just carry with you in every everyday work and life? Yeah. So, you know, I would say again, my two biggest philosophies where I am an evangelist is human-centered design or human-centered everything, basically, and continuous improvement. So as an agile coach and as an agile leader for my entire career, I'm very big on feedback loops, even as, as simple as I want to see my code compile to know that it works. And so I'm going to code a little bit and I'm going to compile and that's a feedback loop, right? Similarly, you know, I want to deploy and I want to get feedback from my customers and see that things are working. And I also want to get feedback from my managers to tell me that I'm on the right track or to know where I stand. And so feedback loops baked into every single system and every single process in the company is my sort of first and foremost leadership philosophy. But of course, that's baked into, you know, the 1% better, the incremental improvements, continuous learning, continuous discovery, all of those agile principles is it, it boils down to essentially, um, you know, it doesn't matter how terrible you are today with a continuous improvement mindset, you will eventually become great. And it doesn't matter how great you are today, without a continuous improvement mindset, you're never going to get any better and you're probably going to get worse. So that's the first big one. And then again, the second one that I, I've talked about is this human-centric approach, which is what coaching is all about, right? Is empathy and trying to understand the needs and motivations of other people from a product development standpoint, from a leadership standpoint. And everything is really just trying to understand that, hey, I'm one person and I've got my own perspective and my own experience. 
and every other person on the planet has their own perspective and experience. And so if I want to be able to lead a team of people, I have to understand their experience and their perspective and use that as my sort of foundation of how I'm going to lead them. And the same thing when I'm building a product, I can't build a product just for the founder or just with the five people that we talked to early on who told us it was a great idea. We need to be continually engaging with our customers and getting feedback on every single facet of our business because their experience, the customer experience is not just the user experience in the product. It's their experience with their problem and their environment. It's the experience with our marketing, with our sales team, with our onboarding, with every new feature that we release, with our customer success team, with finance, with legal, you know, every aspect, every touch point that we have with the business to us looks like a distinct experience, a distinct workflow, but to the customer, it's all one experience. So that's my leadership philosophy in a nutshell. I think this is a great bridge to my next question, which is not about humans, but about AI. Or maybe it is about humans. I haven't figured that out. We haven't, <laughs> haven't, haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> but obviously, um, a massively interesting uh, topic nowadays, now that OpenAI helped us to adopt LLMs on a mainstream level, and we can all use it daily, and most people do or have done at least. How do you see the kind of intersection of that or the role of that new technology moving into the ad tech professional growth, coaching and AI coaching space? What do you think will change? And maybe what do you think will also not change? Or like, what are the frontiers that you see, like what's going to be much, much easier through that tech versus what is going to stay in human hands because there is limitations to it? Well, first, let me give kind of a, like a broader perspective you know, as a new wave of technology, you know, we're going through the hype cycle right now, right? And I actually look at this as a, a simply a sort of a V2 or a next generation of the chatbot technology that really came out around 2015, 2016. So when Alexa was first, Amazon Alexa was first released, Siri, and all of these sort of chatbot tools that were out there, everybody had to plug in a chatbot. And if you were in the startup world back in 2016, all the VCs were asking you, how are you putting chatbots into your, your product? And what we learned very quickly was not only the technology had its limitations, but that every product or every experience is not made better by cramming this technology into it. And in many cases, it's made worse. And so I think by taking the human out of a process or out of an experience, we lose something. And as good as that technology can get, it's a trade-off, right? And I think I look at AI as one is just another technology wave that's going to go through its maturity cycle, not to discredit it. I mean, it is a hugely powerful technology, but I see we're going through this in hyperspace, basically hyperspeed, this realization, oh my gosh, there's this incredible technology. It's going to break absolutely everything. Everyone's going to be out of a job. You know, we're going to go into some incredible you know, either utopia or dystopia in like the next two years. And then we realize, ooh, this actually kind of sucks for a lot of things. And, you know, it really needs a lot of work, but there's some use cases where it's not that great, but it's okay. And it's so fast that it's worth the trade-off. So unfortunately, I think the downside we're going to see very quickly and we're seeing today is a lot of people are going to lose their jobs and the customers are going to lose their experience. Right. So there's going to be whether it's coders or writers or even lawyers or, you know, anyone who's in a knowledge working position is at risk of losing their job and being replaced with a technology that doesn't have 
a soul or doesn't have a conscience, doesn't have a moral compass, and in fact is actually just mimicking humans. And as we were starting to see now, hallucinates and makes a lot of mistakes, really dumb mistakes sometimes. And again, the customer is going to suffer for that. And so that's what's going to happen certainly in the short term. But then I see us coming out of it as we're saying, okay, this is a very powerful tool, but it needs to be honed and shaped and optimized for specific use cases. And only then will it become actually better than something that not necessarily we could get with a human, but that we could do with you know an object-oriented coding approach. So as a coach, do you see any use cases for yourself where it actually helps you to do particular steps like preparation or summarizing yeah. or like any of that type yeah. of stuff? Oh, I use it every day. I don't actually like, I don't like what it creates. And so I actually have gotten away from using it as a content creation tool. I use it as a thinking partner. So say if I'm writing an article or, or a social media post, for example, I have a little customer profile or audience profile that I've written. I have a notion and I kind of leave it there and I ask it, Hey, you know, you are this profile and this is the article I'm writing. What's your reaction to it? What questions do you have? Is anything confusing? So the way I think of it is like, imagine if my audience is sitting right next to me, looking over my shoulder and again, sort of validating and testing what I'm writing. And so I, I don't like to give it the keys to actually write stuff, but it's, it's pretty good at pointing things out or even just validating that what I'm writing is on the right track. But to be honest, it's not even the AI that's so important. It's just the fact that I'm asking the question. It's the rubber duck, right? That we use in the coding, coding methodology, right? That just asking the question, hey, if I'm thinking, it, it's empathy. If I'm thinking about my audience and thinking about how my audience would react to this or how or what questions they might have, I'm now able to, to react to that and to make what I'm doing more resonant with them. That's a super cool use case. And I think it's a very actionable. I'm totally going to steal that tactic now and, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe also post a link to about it so more people can discover it. But I think it's a really, really cool uh, use case. And I haven't thought about that yet, but I also noticed the same as you. We actually even had conflicts about it at home. My um, partner is a technologist as well, also an agile coach, actually, but uh, he uses it quite some more still for content creation. And I keep running against this like quality threshold as well, where I'm like, oh, it just doesn't sound like me. I need to rewrite it entirely. And like, all it gives me is like bullet points, which is nice. It's a start. So I think it can also solve this first draft problem, like get to your first draft the quickest way possible. But the actual final piece will always be, of course, different. Anyways, let's talk more about your coaching business. So just to get a feel, who do you typically work with in the coaching business? Yeah. So I work with primarily SaaS companies or software tech companies from essentially the MVP up to scale. So there are companies that are basically seed stage or pre-seed. They're searching for product market fit. They're building their team. They're trying to create some sort of repeatable success. And then they hit product market fit and they start to scale. And now there's a whole new set of challenges around you know, building a team and sort of continuing to have a high level of quality as the company scales up. And I work with typically the co-founding pair, so the CEO and the CTO, again, along that product pipeline. But you know, I, I do work along the C-suite as well. So I have COO clients and even CRO, CMO clients. But I, I like to kind of sit, oh, certainly CPO as well. So in the larger companies, definitely work with the chief product officer as well. But you know, in those kind of early growth to scale stage SaaS companies, working with those co-founders to help them 
find product market fit, hire really great talent, build really strong, effective teams, scalable process, again, a human-centered culture, raise that series A and then that series B and so on, build up, scale up and get, you know, become incredibly successful (laughs) and do that while having a life and a family and hobbies and passions, because actually those are the things that give us the energy to deal with the grind because it's a hard, long road, right? That brings me to my actual question. It's super cool though, to kind of get this pan of who you're working with. And my question, of course, is what type of challenges do these people currently have? And would love to hear, yeah, like your kind of most recent assessment, because as we all know in tech, we've been going for some interesting times in 2023, uh, shaped up to be a different year than maybe we expected. But uh, yeah, like what's the typical kind of uh, challenges uh, set that these clients come to you with? Well, it's it's in the name of my brand, Chaos to Clarity. So my podcast and then also my startup accelerator is chaos to clarity. And so, you know, when I meet my clients, they are, they're burned out. They're working on so many different things, but they don't understand, you know, what's the most valuable use of their time. They don't know where to find customers. They don't know where to find great talent. They don't know how to put all these pieces together and create um, product market fit or what I call product resonance, where all the different facets of your business are humming together in harmony to create effortless growth. And so they're stuck in the mud right? They're wearing 17 hats and there's fires everywhere and there's, you know, shrapnel flying at them from all different directions. And so I help them, you know, first kind of zoom out and understand their situation and reflect on their situation, understand what the most valuable problems are to solve in which order, how to get people to support them, to rally to their cause and slowly but surely crystallize you know what's my my vision and my purpose what's my strategy and my goals what's my team look like and how do i put this this machine together and then how do i leverage that to create an incredible product and customer experience and again i do that in my accelerator from the very early stage and then as a one-on-one executive coach typically in the later scale stages as well it's good to know eric not everybody's coming to you just with fundraising fundraising uh how do we fundraise in this crazy <laughs> It's good there's more to it, even though they're all challenging. Yeah. I mean, you know, fundraising is certainly a very important, very important challenge. But all of the things that I just talked about is what it takes to get the fundraise, right? If you go (laughs) show up to a VC and, you know, you're in that chaos, they're not going to back you, right? But if you come to them with clarity, you understand, you understand your customer, you understand your market, you understand your competition, you understand your own competitive advantages, you understand how your solution is the optimal one for that particular use case or that particular market segment. You understand your business model and your unit economics. You understand your cash flow and you understand your long-term strategy of how you're going to get to scale. That's what a VC is going to back, right? So it's not about just the pitch. It's not about how to convince somebody or persuade somebody to give you money. It's all that. How do you get from chaos to clarity? Because that's ultimately what a VC is going to back. No, I love that. And I think that was always what was really unique about your sort of brand and I guess general offering as well is it really is, it's really startup centric coaching. It's the hard stuff as in like the the real startup fundamentals as well as the human side. And so to kind of, uh, before we sort of cap it off with the last question that we ask everybody, I'd love to ask you this sort of deep, dark question. You've worked with probably so many founders at this point. When you really dig into those really kind of like 
dark places with these founders, which can come up in coaching quite often, I think, right? You, you even just said, usually these founders are showing up burnt out, tired, and just like in need of something. When it comes to like limiting beliefs and biases and, and things founders don't know, they don't know, these kinds of things, what have you seen? Like, what have you seen really cripple founders in this sort of late seed stage that you help them sort of get over and you've really seen some amazing results come from? Like, what are people suffering from? Really the hard stuff. Yeah. I'm going to have to be careful here to make sure that I, I'm uh, very sensitive to confidentiality. But there's definitely a story that's coming top of mind to me. And the main framework or the way that I look at it is leading out of confidence instead of leading out of fear. So a lot of founders and, you know, this is when you're in the chaos, it's scary and fear drives us to do a lot of things that we, well, that take us down the wrong path. And so I have one client that was a, you know, a young early twenties, you know, one of these hotshot Stanford dropout types, right? Somebody who was super smart, thought, you know, they had this incredible idea and said, you know, school's only holding me back. And in the peak of our last boom cycle, raised a hell of a lot of money on just an idea and knew pretty much right away that they actually didn't have any understanding of how to build a business or even how to build a product beyond that story. And so went out and hired who he thought were the best possible people to lead these teams and got stuck in the mud fairly quickly with a very, very high burn rate, like paid way too much for these hotshot executives who he thought was going to, you know, was going to take him where he needed to go, made a mistake, which was essentially hiring too late, like hiring somebody from a much later stage company into the startup, didn't have any kind of company culture. And so there weren't a line on values and really didn't understand how to manage people at all. And just was just burning money, you know, like gasoline and got into this incredibly deep depression, which, you know, I think bordered on suicidal. And so I really had to lean in to this person as, you know, not just a coach, but a therapist, a friend. I actually even saw him as a younger version of myself. A lot of the challenges that I dealt with growing up and really had to help him understand that a, that, you know, he's incredibly lucky and had this incredible opportunity and that there were no expectations of him. Like he didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to keep any of these people that he hired. Like if he had to fire people, it wouldn't be the end of the world. If he had to shut down the company and give the money back, that wouldn't be the end of the world. And so I actually took him through this exercise, this sort of visualization exercise where, uh, and in fact, we can even do it here, you know, people that are listening or watching go through this exercise. So close your eyes for a moment and imagine something, an experience in your life that was very scary, right? Something from your childhood or something, whether it was a, a near death experience or just something where you felt incredibly uncomfortable and fearful. And then where does that, where do you feel that in your body? Like what actually comes up? I usually get some tingling kind of down in my gut, a little sinking feeling and just feels kind of crunchy around my stomach and my heart. Okay. And so I'm kind of going through that mental process and I sit with that for a minute and I just feel what it feels like to be afraid. Okay. And then we take a deep breath and we kind of push that off. Now let's think about an experience where we are incredibly confident Right. So I'm thinking about, you know, when I feel like I'm on stage and I'm about to give a talk and I'm feeling really good about it. I, I've rehearsed this, you know, that my friends are in the audience. I'm feeling really great. And where's that confidence come up? Well, I immediately I feel it in my shoulders. Like my shoulders start to puff up a little bit. 
I get a little tingle on the back of my neck, right? So that's where I feel confidence, okay? So I sit with that for a minute and I really just get in touch with that. Okay, take a deep breath, right? Push it off. Now, whenever we're experiencing a challenge in our day-to-day life, taking a moment to say, well, what am I actually feeling right now? Am I feeling fear or am I feeling confidence? Anytime I'm about to make a big decision, right? Am I leading out of confidence or leading out of fear? If I'm leading out of confidence, don't second guess myself, no imposter syndrome, move forward. If I'm leading out of fear, I need to stop, right? I need to understand why am I afraid? You know, what's the risk here? What are the trade-offs? And can I get to a place where I'm leading out of confidence? So that's what chaos to clarity means at a real human physical level, physiological level, is going from fear to confidence. Now I can move forward. I'm not second guessing. I'm not playing devil's advocate. I'm not getting in my own way. And I've got that conviction, not only to lead myself, but to lead my team. So I was able to do this with this client, got him out of this depression, actually ended up firing like probably 75% of the team because that was just what was needed, built a new team around him that he could trust. So now he could delegate, right? Now he had confidence, at least that he had people around him that could do the job. And also that he was able to bring down his burn rate so that he could survive to get to product market fit. And then we continued on in that mode to acquiring first customers, you know, getting additional traction and testimonials and feedback, which led to more talent wanting to come on board, more money being raised and so on and so forth. And so now they're, they're at that product market fit, they're in market, they're, you know, a nice kind of early state, early growth stage startup. And he's leading out of confidence. And every time I see him, you know, I go visit once in a while, you know, he gives me a hug, like I'm his uncle, right. Or I'm his, his, his not even his brother, but like his dad, maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but you know, really like, I feel like I've made a connection for life, right. Not just a client, but somebody who I I've really helped make a difference in their life. And that's why I do this. That's the fulfillment for me that I could never get from coding. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Eric. That was, that was really special. And I think every founder out there can use that advice for sure, because it does get hard. Thank you so much for doing this work. And thank you for walking us through the exercise. And thank you for sharing a second what Anthony said. I think the tech world is lucky to have you as a guide and as a coach. So really, really grateful for this experience too. I know that Anthony has one last question that we always ask. I almost feel like it's anticlimactic now. (laughs) I know. But at the same time, it's a good question. So I think you should still ask. I think we'll have to um, tinker with the, the post, post-production. post No, um, this, is, this is always a really great note to end on. And I think, Eric, as you know, um, you know, the reason we do this is because there are there are early 20s you listening to mm-hmm. you now, right? Yeah. <laughs> as talking more PS that sounds. Like there are people out there that we're both trying to, that we're all trying to help. And this last question is essentially for them. So if you could go back, to that early 20s version of you, that person who has two direct reports, 20 years older than them. If you could go back to that that younger Eric and give yourself, yeah, your top, what, two or three tips, mm-hmm. right? Two or three pieces of advice, uh, what would they be? So I think obviously just what I just said, leading out of confidence versus leading out of fear is one that definitely could have helped me through the imposter syndrome that I suffered with early on in my career, for sure. Another one is, I think, to take more risk That was something that, you know, looking back on my career, I I wish I would have taken more risk. I had opportunities to join really interesting startups or to take really interesting roles 
and I tended to take the safer option where, you know, if I was in my own head, you know, 20 years ago today, I would have sacrificed some money and some comfort to just have a really cool experience and a really cool opportunity. It's one of those, you know, you only live once, you know, money isn't everything and even safety and stability or job security is an illusion, right? We've, we're seeing it now with all of these layoffs and things that are happening that um, it doesn't matter what company you work for, your job is never safe. And so you might as well take a leap and try to have some fun and have a cool experience with it. Awesome. Great advice. Thank you so much, Eric. This has been incredible. And the time passed way too quickly as per usual. <laughs> Thank you for all the advice you've shared. We're going to link all your resources in the show notes, of course. And I'm going to try to look up those uh, videos that you mentioned to link them as well. And I truly hope a lot of our listeners have as much fun listening to this conversation and take as much away as I did. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio. Or simply follow Bunch at Bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests who join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think. And that's a wrap. We are your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time. Till next time. Till next time. Till next time.